0: Episode 8 of the podcast is with Mark Armitage Mark has a very impressive CV including working at clubs like Arsenal, Huddersfield and with the FA Mark talks us about his experiences throughout his career how how his focus has evolved and what he does in his current role Mark also mentions some upcoming regional network meetings so keep an eye out for that I really enjoyed this chat with Mark and I hope you do too Welcome to episode 8 of the
1: Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today we're joined by Mark Armitage, who's a lecturer at the University of Suffolk. Mark, how are you
2: doing? Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, Ben, thanks for having me. As you know, I've been a massive fan of your um,
1: federation since it started. Oh, man. We'll keep the the podcast off, Mark. We'll go straight into it because we've had a little chat beforehand and uh, I want to... Get you talking as much as possible and get me sat back and listening so because I know you've got some quality stuff to go through so just take us through to start with your background um where you've been the clubs you've been at and take us up to you what you're currently doing which I briefly mentioned then
2: yeah of course no problems mate hopefully I won't have uh, any problems talking um so yeah I guess I started out as an intern when I was doing my undergraduate degree. Uh, Initially, I started at Cambridge City and then Cambridge United, working effectively with their youth and reserve teams. From there, I went on to Watford again as an intern. And after graduation, I went to Norwich. So when I look back at my career, um, I I guess did it the old school way. I guess I had to do the hard yards in that I did an unpaid internship for seven years. Um, Because of my own personal situation, I never did that full-time. It was always part-time or sort of ad hoc, um, but I amassed quite a bit of experience. Um, After university, I went into teaching, so I taught in a sixth form college. And again, one of the main reasons I did that, one, I enjoyed teaching, and two, I realised it was quite a good career to give me free time uh, to go and get experience in what I actually wanted to do. So obviously in teaching, you get every weekend free most evenings, and also 13 weeks paid holiday a year. Um, so if you like, uh, my teaching salary enabled me to work voluntarily uh, in, in, in football. Um, my first sort of paid involvement was at Norwich. So at Norwich, I started off as an intern, uh, and then I went into the academy sort of on a sessional uh, sort of basis, working with the under 10s to under 16s. Um, And then I guess my first big opportunity came from my first full-time role when I went to Southampton to work with their under-18s. Obviously, at the time, Southampton were ultra-successful and I was privileged to work with some players who've gone on to do some great things in the game. And I guess off the back of that, I got the opportunity to go to work for Arsenal. At Arsenal, my job title was Academy of Strength and Conditioning Coach. But I also took all of the under-23 and under-19 youth Champions League games in the time that I was there um after that i decided to move back home and i worked for the football association uh, that was quite an interesting role because i was a consultant while i was doing that so effectively um, i would be paid for what i did uh, which meant that i was quite flexible and again it was a massive learning opportunity for me because i could work in a range of different areas i guess looking back at my career to that point i'd done quite well obviously done my internships i'd done sort of the Foundation phase, if you like, uh, youth development phase and professional development phase. And I guess to top it off, I also worked uh, for my country effectively. So although I'd done really well, um, it was all in academy football. Because I achieved everything that I wanted to do there, I guess the next logical challenge for me was to work in a first team. Um, So about 18 months ago, two years ago, uh, I got a call from Huddersfield. uh, It's when they just went up to the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, I dropped everything and I went there. Had a fantastic year with them there. Obviously, managed to retain sort of Premier League status, if you like, um, but I had to make the personal decision in the summer. Uh, I've been with my now wife for, for over 12 years and we knew we were going to obviously be getting married uh, and, like I say, home for me is in Suffolk in a place called Lowestoff. Uh so an opportunity come up to, to move back home and I guess to have a career change, so I'm now lecturing at the University of Suffolk.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So you've been it. I mean, that's a, a pretty impressive uh, CV. Yeah. You know, like The clubs you've covered and the roles you've had, uh, I think that's you're in a great position for the guys listening to learn off and to go through some of the experiences and listen to some of the experiences that you've actually been through. Um, so we take you... Back to your time at Arsenal, um, I understand, because obviously you mentioned about being involved with the 23s and the, and the 19s in, in Champions League games, but your role was academy, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was a really uh, interesting and positive experience, um, because at the time, uh, the department was headed up by a chap called Des Ryan, who's still there, and his background is rugby. So that was a great learning experience to learn from other sports. So, Arsenal, a bit different from some other clubs as well in that they have two training grounds. So, they have, uh, they have Hale End, which would predominantly be their academy training ground, if you like. So, excuse me, I, I'm not 100% sure what age they start, probably under eight, something like that, um, up to under 16s. And then they have another training ground, which is called London Colney. This is the training ground which the first team operate out of. But obviously, to support that, they also have all of the young professionals So your first and second year um, scholars, effectively, and your first and second year uh, pros. So that would then make up, nowadays, the under-23s and the under-17s. So because there was a group of players who would play across squads, so they could play for the under-18s, under-19s, and the under-23s, and hopefully the first team, there's sort of an opportunity to perhaps break the conventional mould whereby we wasn't assigned to an age group. So in my career to this point, like I say, when I was at Norwich, for example, I did the under-10s, the under-16s, Southampton the under-18s. Here, although I was an academy strength and conditioning coach and I did the 23s and the 19s games, my main responsibility uh, was for the physical development of a group of 10 players. So at London Colney, there was roughly 40 players which were either scholars or first and second year pros, and Dez hired four conditioning coaches. So that obviously split the groups down into four groups of ten. So like I say, although I did the games with them age groups, it was actually my job was to sort of nurture just these ten players, if you like.
1: That's a really interesting way of doing it, isn't it? I suppose. Are you aware of any other clubs doing that?
2: No, I've not heard of anyone uh, since. And like when I look back, for me, it was... Obviously, fantastic because it gave me quite a lot of flexibility and freedom with my work. And again, because the players would play across different squads, um, it then made me have to be a lot more flexible in my approach uh, and it enabled me to perhaps become a little bit broader with my knowledge so rather than being ring fenced for one age group. I was preparing players to play in the FA Youth Cup to hopefully play in the first team and the Champions League. So again, I think something that was really good about this model was the the player care um, because we could spend so much time just working on an individual basis because like i say although i looked after 10 players they technically could be playing for four different squads so on any given day from a physical perspective you'd only really be working with two or three players because some might just be coming out of the game so they'd be doing recovery so they could probably self-manage a little bit One other player might be going into a game the next day, so obviously match day minus one, there's not too much they could do. Whereas another couple of groups of players, they could be match day minus three. So on that particular day, you'd spend a lot more time with them players because obviously there'd be more scope to do work. And that would always move around. Um, So all of the players got what they needed, but perhaps in a very individual and bespoke way. There wasn't necessarily following the generic team pattern. Um, So that was was excellent. Again, I think sort of looking back, and this isn't necessarily related to this role, but perhaps sort of indicative of the industry in general, is how we can almost become protective of the players we work with. So if you're ring-fenced to working with a particular age group, obviously you want the best for everybody you work with, but then also to a certain extent, you need to protect your own reputation So, quite often, I think it can force us to work in isolation because we just get our heads down, we work with the players that we need to work with, and hopefully, we get them onto the next stage in their career, wherever that may be. And I guess now this is probably even more influenced by sort of people coming into the game from the outside, if you like. So, you hear more and more, and you see more of it on social media now, there's almost like your personal trainers who are freelancing and working with football players. A few years ago, when I look back on my career, this would have been a massive threat to me because I was paid to deliver a job to people and I knew I was good enough to do it. So why were they going elsewhere? Um, But since I've matured, I've realised that's not always the case. Sometimes people do it for perceptual reasons because other people are doing it. They think they need to do it to keep up. It might be that they might have worked with someone before and they connected with them on a personal level. There's so many factors that sort of tie into it. So I think as I've sort of become more experienced, I've become more confident in actually what I can deliver. And I guess I was probably guilty of doing this myself when I first started out. I guess we almost tried to protect our own existence. Um, So by that, I guess what I mean is is you want your work to be recognised directly with that individual or that team. Um, And then I guess effectively you can become a crutch for the player. The player needs you there because you've always been there and you can get into their heads and you can make yourself feel really great because, oh, the team only performs when I'm there. And I guess what I try to do now is I don't want to be needed. I want to be wanted. So people choose to work with me because they feel that I can help them, not that I need to be there sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's fascinating because it ties into the episode just before this one with Wayne Richardson who does work privately with players. And a lot of the stuff he spoke about was that the reason he worked privately with, with players was because they felt like they got that personal touch and they felt like they could build a relationship with the coach. Whereas if you're in, in, in um, a training environment where the coach has got to look after, like what you said, maybe 30, 40 players, as much as you try and give that that same, um, that same personal touch to the players, they don't they might not feel like they get it. Whereas splitting the groups up like that and especially when you weren't having the full 10 players for the majority of the time, that, that allowed, I'm, I'm guessing that allowed you to develop those relationships, which meant that they were essentially getting that, if you want to call it like personal training, but within, within the team.
2: Oh, definitely. So of a morning, for example, I might get in and the first people I might work with might be the players who have played the day before, so they're on recovery. So obviously they're on the bikes going through their phone rolling their mobilization, etc., etc. So it's very relaxed, very informal, where you can have conversations to build relationships. But you can also make sure they're actually on task. And you can almost be a bit creative in your delivery. Um, so at that time, I was getting big into some of Kelly's work from the Supple Leopards. Um, and you could actually have the time to work through exercises and problem solve and see what works for certain individuals. And you could make it really bespoke. Once I'd done that, obviously the other players who might be training that day, they would have come in, they would have seen the physios, done what they needed to do. I would then be free to do their pre-training preparation. Um, so that might be their injury prevention stuff in the gym, pre-activation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You could then go out onto the grass to do the warm-up for the team session. You could then come back into the gym and you could work with a player in your group who was injured. And again, normally as an s and coach working for the team, you'd have to be standing on the side of the pitch watching the session we didn't necessarily have to do that one, of the other guys could have picked that up. So in an hour and a half, rather than just standing watching training, I could have been back in the gym working one-to-one. Then you could have some players coming in to do some recovery work. Then you could have lunch. And that's basically how the day worked. It was sort of really dynamic, if you like.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a way that I've certainly not heard of other clubs working, but when you, when you talk through it and, like, and the reasons behind it, I think... I think a lot of coaches look at that and think that makes sense Um, and it it gives the players what they want a lot of the time as well doesn't it like they they get that personal touch they get the attention that they need Um, and especially if you are able to get a player one on one like I don't know many other clubs where that would happen apart from them being injured
2: yeah definitely and I think when I look back on my career obviously injuries are unfortunate you never wish it on anybody but it was almost an opportunity for me to gain trust and respect from players because that's when you could really show them what you know and how you can help them. And I guess this just sort of front-loaded that, that took out needing an injury to build that relationship because you could do it actually as they were playing. And then hopefully, obviously when you go through that rehab process, you build that relationship, you do loads of good work. But in reality, once I go back into playing they're probably going to slip back into their old habits. A few will stay with you and carry on doing the great work. Um, But because they think your work's only got them back to where they were, then they don't think they need to continue it. Whereas if you can start that process earlier and you can build that relationship and they feel like it's having a positive impact on their performance, that's going to be really powerful. And I think that's something I learned massively through my career was that when you work with top-class players, you need to give them something. So we speak about people yeah. wanting to go outside and work with external sort of professionals, if you like. Like you need to give them something. And I think I come from a very sort of academic background and I listened to a podcast with with Ross and obviously he played, which was, was great for him. But I guess it's almost like horses for courses. And I guess my message would be, be who you are. So it's great that people listen to these podcasts, they pick up ideas and experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But what you can't do is you can't copy that person because you're not that person. So you need yeah. to find what works for you. So for me, I didn't play. So I had to be the best academically that I could be because I felt that was going to give me the best chance. So I'd like to think every time someone came to me with a question, I could answer it. If somebody needed something explained in more detail, I could do it. But I think where I went wrong at times was because my academic knowledge was so good, I had a good textbook knowledge. But the way that I could show people what I knew was to find faults. And as we know, not all people like to hear about negatives. So predominantly in football, you have a particular type of player who has come through the system. They've always been the best player. They've always scored the most amount of goals. The coaches always liked them because obviously they've made them look great. And then by the time they get to 18, 19, 20, if they're in the gym with you and all you're doing is telling them what they're bad at, they're going to switch off and they're not going to want to know um, because as we know, not everybody's got a growth mindset. I think that's something that's interested in me at the moment, but that's a, a separate issue. So if you are interested, obviously there's books out there, growth mindset is one of them. So we need to find ways that we can engage people. And something I found that worked for me when I'm working with these players who have been told that they're great all of the time and perhaps we've created more of a fixed mindset is that sometimes I need to work on assets and I need to give them super strengths. So rather than going into a gym environment, you can't do this, you can't do that. I would work out what they can do and I'd make them really good at it, so then they felt empowered to train, and then slowly I could drip free in some of the other more technical aspects, which I felt was important for their development.
1: I love that, I think that's really, really powerful, Um, and amazing for other coaches to hear, Uh, I've never heard people use that before, but super strength, I think that I can just imagine players hearing that and and taking to it and being on board and getting that buy-in from players rather than like you say. I think, and I've done this time and time again. You, you do as a coach sometimes just fall and, and and try and find the ways you want to improve them. But and, and knowing what you want to improve with the player and putting it across to that player are two very very separate things, aren't they? Like you do have to be wary of how you put something across to a player and the reasons behind it and. Um, I suppose it's justifying your programme but in the right way to the player and it's the language you use and, and using a language like, like super strength will just, that'll, get it. that'll capture a player's um, imagination and, and their attention.
2: Ah, oh, 100%. Like we spoke about before we started recording this, like communication is the key to success. Um, so it's okay having all of these ideas and they might be wonderful and fantastic. But before you show someone what you know, you need to show somebody that you care. And obviously, I'm using these catchy phrases, and I've got to confess, they're not mine. So this idea of a super strength, I apologize, I can't remember where I got it from, but I picked it up. And that was almost like a eureka moment for me. Because like I say, all the way through my career, I've been hammering people's techniques. I've been telling them their fitness testing results aren't good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, hang on a minute. Why not actually try to work on something that's already good and make it great? Yeah. and I think that's something as well. I reflect back, and I've been really, really lucky, uh, Ben. I've managed to work with some players who've gone on to do some great things in the game, and I don't profess it's solely down to my input, if any. Um, but when I look back, especially when they've been in some of the environments I've been in, the players are super talented. But again, this is a general observation, it would be great to, to hear your thoughts. It's my belief that the talent pool in football is, is shrinking. Obviously, you're always going to get the people who are ridiculously good, so you're always going to get your Ronaldo's and your Messi's. Um, but generally, in academies, you don't so, so we take positions, for example. Technically, maybe going back 10, 15, 20 years, you could tell that a player played in a certain position, they're a winger, they're a centre-half, etc., etc. For me now, that technical gap is, is narrowing, um, so competition's getting even harder Um, so when I look back at the players I've worked with, yes, they've all been talented, but I think perhaps more importantly, they've all been hard-working, honest, genuine people, and I guess to chuck another phrase out there, I always say, and I maintain this, that that good people make great players, Um, so we need to make sure that we work on the individual as well as sort of the footballer, and give them some of the softer skills, because that's going to have a massive impact. And I think that's where we find it quite hard as strength and conditioning coaches and sports scientists, is we like quantification. So we spend lots of time doing monitoring and testing and and using data to inform our practice. But predominantly this is only, and if we jump forward to the FA, it's only really shining a torch on the the physical corner. I think we might be missing a, a massive trick with the sort of psych social corners. If I look back at the players who I've been fortunate to work with, perhaps from the under-16s who are now played for that country, yeah, technically they were good, tactically they were good, physically they were good, but of all due respect, they wouldn't have been in the academy at that age if they wasn't. Natural selection process, they wouldn't have made it. The thing that made them from good to great was their sort of psychological resilience and their social skills, if you like.
1: Yeah. And I don't know whether this is like going to sound like an old man sat here, and I, I, I like to think I'm not an old man, I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I Still
2: I like move to well in the gym. <laughs>
1: yeah, well. <laughs> maybe. Um, but do you think that's just like a like a, I suppose a sign of the times that youth for uh, youth players or kids now as they're coming through, not just in, in football clubs, but in school or just in society in general, that I think it's harder for them to not, like, have conversations and and speak to people. And I don't know whether that's to do with like technology now, that a lot of it is over things like what we're talking on, like Skype and over FaceTime, or a lot of it's through the, the mobile phone. But like you say, those soft skills are absolutely vital, aren't they? And and I don't know. I don't know whether that's me just having a bit of a rant or whether you agree with that. But
2: nah,
1: I that understand. is the way things are changing.
2: Uh, I mean, like nowadays, people don't need to communicate with real human beings. So let's go back to like when I was an intern, for example, to get an internship, you wouldn't just go to university and then they would give you an association with with a club, for example. Like I had to graft. I had to go out. I had to get the train to places to speak to people. I had to send letters, I had to get rejections. Um, Like even when I was at uni, if I wanted to get some extra income and I wanted a job in a bar, I'd have to print off my CV and walk around all the bars asking for work. And obviously that's quite an uncomfortable thing to have to do, but nowadays you don't have to. You can sit at home, Tesco's will bring food to you. If you want a takeout, there's an app on your phone, you can pick whatever you want. If you want to buy clothes, you can just do it on the internet. If they don't fit, you can send it back. Like... There's so many things that you can do in in isolation. I think, yeah, like you say, as a society, we're losing some of our social skills. And I guess because of that, we're losing some of our psychological resilience because like we spoke about my career. My career has been fantastic and I'm super lucky with what I've achieved. But it's not been as easy as what we're talking about today. I didn't just rock up at these places and be given opportunities and succeed in them. I had to make work and I think that's sometimes where I get frustrated now when I try to mentor people it's like yeah you can look at my career and it was very linear and very smooth that might be by luck or by design but it had loads of adversity in there and if I didn't have the mental toughness a bit like the players we work with to persevere to go in on the days where I didn't want to to do the things that I was really apprehensive about but I thought well if I don't do it I'm not going to get to the next step perhaps now it's easier to avoid them situations um, Yeah guess it's a bit like dumping your girlfriend back in the day you had to turn up with some flowers and you know explain yourself whereas now you can just send a text message do you know what I mean <laughs> <status>.
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: yeah
1: I think that's that's really um a really strong point that if if people do like you've mentioned the clubs and, and your journey um to where you are now and when people will look at that they'll think oh wow what like what a career they've been at all these clubs but they don't realize like you say the work that goes into it and and the times you've been rejected, and I think the word you used that was that's really important was being uncomfortable. And the, I don't think, like, to look at, I've, I've got in front of me, like, the career and the clubs you've been at, and it's like, wow, that's impressive. The FA, working in the Premier League at a top academy like Southampton and Arsenal and places like that. But you take it back and you think back to the times that you were in situations that you didn't enjoy, but you knew that you had to do to put yourself in positions to get in those jobs. And it's, it's exactly what Ross Bennett spoke about in, in episode three on the podcast, that you've got to put yourself out there. And it's not going to be enjoyable a lot of the time. Uh, in fact, the majority of the time isn't, but you will get the reward in the end. And if you keep going and going and going, it, things will pay off.
2: Definitely, yeah, 100%. And I think we're the same as the players that we work with. We're the same as the people we aspire to be. Like, at the moment, obviously, we're talking about I'm now trying to create this impression that I'm a consultant or an expert or a mentor, but I'm still going through the same struggles as the people I'm trying to help. I'm still trying to rebuild my reputation, improve my network, upskill my knowledge. It's never ending. Like I think we tend to look at, and that's where social media is great because we can share loads of information, but we only share the good stuff. Like if I look on my Instagram account, I only put on pictures where I think I look half decent on that day or I'm in a pretty cool place. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just show what we're good at. And I think that's the the danger of people listening to podcasts like this and thinking, oh Mark's had a great career, he's done really well. Yeah, hopefully I have. But like I say, it didn't happen overnight. And you have to you have to be prepared to go through them hard yards. And like like you say, to be uncomfortable. So sometimes in your life you have to momentarily make yourself uncomfortable to be more comfortable. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people now get lost because they just get sort of semi comfortable and they think, oh, this is okay. I'll just do this. And then in five years' time, they're moaning about what they're doing. It's like about being a maverick and going out there and changing the whole world. It's, well, if you've got somewhere you want to go, what processes can you put in place to achieve it? And then prepare yourself that it's not going to be nice and smooth. You're going to hit speed bumps in the road, to to coin another phrase.
1: Yeah. And And it could be cliche like get get comfortable being uncomfortable and getting out your comfort zone and all that sort of stuff but it, it is exactly that isn't it like that's what you have to go and do and you have to get used to it and and suck it up and and get on with it because that's the way that you develop these opportunities um because I w- I want to go on to your your current role because I know you briefly mentioned it then mark about what you're trying to build at the moment and building reputation and stuff but if we just flick back to So when you from Arsenal you went on to you worked um, with the FA as well?
2: Yeah, yeah. So so again that was a really interesting and, and, and different experience because I guess you hear people like Nick Grantham talk and they're really inspirational and about creating your own identity and your own brand and people wanting to work with you because they choose to, not that they have to. I think he speaks about when he worked for the EIS, everyone perceived him to be a great coach, but the athletes were told to work with him. Whereas now he sort of lives and dies by the sword. So he has to be good to keep work coming in. I guess that was my first experience of it. When I went to the FA, I set up a consultancy business and I was really, really lucky at the time. Um, so my work there was really diverse. So I guess I, I went in initially to work with the men's under 18 squads. Um, but on the men's side, I ended up working with the under 15s to the under 20s. The FA also do goalkeeper specific camps. So that's where basically they get, uh, I guess, if you like, the best goalkeepers in the country from the clubs to come into St. George's Park for two or three days to do real specific work. And then that's obviously where they can have an influence on their development and build the relationships with the clubs to hopefully improve the quality of player in the future. Again, I was fortunate in the time that I was there. Uh, I supported the men's under-17s at the World Cup in Chile. And I also uh, supported the under-19s in the Euro finals in Germany. So I sort of worked across the younger age groups, if you like, uh, on the men's side and also got some specialism with regards to the goalkeepers. On the women's side, uh, I worked from the under-18s. And again, I was dead lucky. I managed to do one camp with the senior team. So I managed to see the whole sort of pathway, if you like, and I guess bolted onto that. Um, for a six month period I was also the lead physical performance coach for the female talent pathway and I know Simon obviously mentioned this briefly um, because of the great work he's doing at Derby but just to explain that so (laughs) women's football is is very different to men's football in that men's football is obviously powered by the Premier League and the clubs have got colossal amounts of money which they can invest into their academies So to a certain extent, on the men's side, the clubs can control how they produce and develop their players. Unfortunately, on the women's side, it hasn't got the sort of financial resource um, to do the same thing. So what happens there is, uh, again, it's only my understanding, it's probably a little bit more like sports like cricket in that there's almost like a central funding. So the FA still put money into the programme, which is fantastic because then they get an opportunity to influence it. Um, so, I guess obviously the FA wants to improve the standard of the senior women's team. And then you can begin with the end in mind and you can almost reverse engineer what you need to do in order to achieve that. So, they've got the senior team and then they've got the younger age groups, exactly the same as on the men's side. But then the FA will also part finance and have some say over what they call national performance camps. So, I guess this is like the level below the international setup. So the girls who, who are good, but not quite ready to be involved internationally. So I guess if you want to link it back to sort of more S&C, these could be more of perhaps you know, late maturing girls, for example. They wouldn't uh, necessarily fall out of the system. They'd just go into a different category. So it's your national performance camps. That was underpinned by regional excellence centres. So these would be like the east, the northwest, the southwest, et cetera, et cetera. So then that would be where the best girls from the clubs in that region go to receive training. Working back down from that, they had the regional talent centres. And this, I guess, was what one of my jobs was. So that is basically like your academy. So that would be all of your clubs. And I guess my job was to try to coordinate and synchronise what we felt was important at the top of the tree with regards to the senior team. And what they need to be doing, I guess, at the foundation and youth development phases to build the, to put in place the building blocks to enable that to happen. And obviously below that you had the grassroots structures and they also had something called um, advanced coaching centres. And this is something hopefully we'll come back to at the end of this podcast with regards to some of the, the issues who are living in certain regions in the country. So we know predominantly if you live in the east or the southwest. You're more remote because you can't go beyond that point. So I live in Suffolk and we sort of have a phrase that people don't pass through Suffolk because it's the North Sea If you carry on going. So typically yeah. people either come in and go out or they stay where they are. So the idea yeah. of these centres were was to put specific support in regions which perhaps aren't as accessible as other parts of the country. Um, so like I say I only did the job for six months and only did three days a week so I probably didn't have uh, any real impact but for me it was a fascinating insight into the female game and I guess some of the unbelievable work which is being done and some of the great staff which are being employed there and I guess probably most importantly for myself it's probably a period of my career working in women's football that I actually enjoyed working with the players the most Um, so my CV is predominantly male but obviously working with the female athletes or female players was was just a brilliant environment right from the grassroots on the sort of talent pathway all the way up to the senior women. It was pretty much a pleasure to work with every single player. And I guess we've all got gripes and I guess these are two of mine. So I think one thing I'm quite passionate about is that women's football needs to be seen in its own right uh, and it needs to be respected for that. So, I get the feeling sometimes that people perceive sort of women's football as football's little sister, and that's not the case at all. There's some great players, there's some great staff doing some great work. Um, So, I think it just needs to be more recognised and sort of supported. Uh, And I guess my second thing, and this only came to me a couple of weeks ago here at the university, I was giving a talk to the girls' football team, and I was talking to them about women's football, and then I guess I had another light bulb moment in that. What we can't always do, and there's some people already doing this, and I'm not going to mention all the names because that'll be the whole time of the podcast. The people will know who's doing their work. They're doing some great stuff. Um, But what we can't do is is we can't just cross-transfer what we do in the male environment into the female. I think we need to get better at understanding the specific nature of the demands and almost coming up with sort of specific structures and processes rather than, like I say, just sort of cross transferring models.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, it's always developing, isn't it? Like, I think the the last few, I suppose the last few years, you see the stuff that's coming out. of Women's form it's really impressive, and I'd like I say, that I think we both know some guys that are working in uh, in the women's game, and they're absolutely quality. And it's, I think, it's only going to go from strength to, uh, strength, to strength over the next few years, um, and and the people that are in charge and in control, uh, or in the, in the jobs, the way they make decisions. I think are the guys that are going to be impactful and, and push the game on. Yeah. Yeah,
2: no, definitely. I think it's a, a big thing for, for your listeners. Obviously you you've got a very diverse audience if you like. So some people will be listening who are already working in the environment that they want to be in, but if you've got aspirations again, don't just listen to me and my career and think I want to copy that. There's so many different opportunities out there and just be open-minded to it. And again, other people on other podcasts have done a great job of trying to sort of get away of sort of stigmas of S&C. So to be the best S&C coach, you don't always have to have what's perceived to be the best job title. And quite often, the best people aren't in their roles anyway. So again, I don't want to sort of be sort of condescending to anyone. Um, but you would like to think in in any industry to get to the top, you have to be the best. But unfortunately, that isn't the case. Like, no way. So there's some people at the tops of some organisations who are fantastic and there's other people who have been given the opportunity and they've made the most of it. Um, So just find the level that you want to work at and you're comfortable with. Um, Don't keep chasing. It's the same with, when I look back at my career, so perceptually working in the first team, That's probably where people started to sort of sit up and listen and think, oh, Mark's actually quite good at what he does. But again, if I look back, with my skill set, I can probably add as much, if not more, value in an academy setting just because of the sort of the area of my expertise, if you like, my own personality, et cetera, et cetera. But we all want to get to the top. We all want to work with first teams. We all want to work in the Champions League. And it's like there's very few posts. You're not going to get that just by being the best. So perhaps just work where you can add the most amount of value.
1: I think it goes full circle though, as well, doesn't it? So what we spoke about before in terms of uh, and developing your like reputation, and I mean, there's loads of people coming in or wanting to come into these jobs, and like you say, there are right at the top end, there's, there's not there's not enough jobs available. So yeah, you do have to go and seek out other opportunities, but it's it's developing your worth, isn't it, as well?
2: Yeah, definitely 100%, and I think that's something that I'm quite passionate about. I think it's understanding your your worth, and then also sort of understanding your contribution, and I wouldn't like to think I'd come across as being humble, I'd like to think that I am quite humble, and again I've been really lucky to work with some of the players I have, but it's almost a privilege. And a I don't profess really to be the best S&C coach out there. I don't think I've got to where I have because I'm the best S&C coach. I've got the best knowledge. I think I'm quite holistic in approach. And I think I've helped more people than what I have players. Um, and I think a lot of the people I've helped are now sort of become more friends, if you like, because, again, you need to have professional boundaries 100%, but you need to be able to connect with people and you need to invest in them as an individual. And I guess this comes to more of a a broader sort of philosophical view. And obviously, the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot of sort of soul searching, if you like, with regards to the big career change I've gone through and and about work-life balances. And I listened to a a different podcast last week by a chap called Ryan Horn, who I hadn't heard of before. And again, he said something that resonates really strongly with me. As a coach, you're always going to get hired and fired. And again, it's not related to how good you are. So there's some very good staff out there unemployed because circumstances have worked against them. So as a coach, you're always going to be prepared to take that hit hide and fired. But as a husband and a father, hopefully you're not going to be in that situation. So rather than it being about a work-life balance, does it need to be a balance or can it be one of the same thing? And I think that's where I've tried to operate in that I'm not one of them people who can sort of compartmentalised things so I don't have my personal life my work life my social life etc etc I am who I am and I try to give everything to every person who I come across Uh, and I think that's stood me in good stead
1: as well yeah that's great Um, what podcast was that? Um, so, so that was Pacey Performance Oh, was it a Pacey one? Yeah,
2: Pacey did. Yeah, like I say, Ryan Horney's is an American, obviously. I've looked him up since. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. really interesting guy. And, you know, when you just hear something, again, I was driving my car home from work, and I thought, that's really powerful. And I guess it's sort of, I think we're all on a journey, like I've said, and we go through this natural evolution process. And I think, so just to introduce another book, I'm rubbish with autism because i remembering authors, um, but as a book, start with why and effectively it's why do you do what you do and I think when we were talking earlier about adversity and overcoming it and being driven to succeed and going into work on the days where you don't really want to or going into meetings where you know you're going to be humiliated or working with a player who's going to really reduce your self-esteem so I think it's taken me a long time to find my why so I think if I look back on my career and if I'm being brutally honest to start off with it's all about clubs what club can I get to Again, we now live in a world which is driven by social media and perception. So that was almost fueling my ego. I was collecting badges, if you like. And then after a while, that got not boring, but I got a few badges. Do you know what I mean? So I thought, well, this is great, but, you know, there's a limit to it. So then it was more about players. So then I was more interested in what players I could work with and how I could develop them. And again, when I look back, I think we need to be careful that we're not thumbprinting. Again, the majority of them players are probably going to make it anyway. So you're just trying to go on that journey with them. And I think what I've come to realise now is I'm interested in people and I want to try to help people. And I think that's why I'm comfortable making my transition. And people are say, you're crazy. Like, why have you gone from working in the Premier League to working in academia? Because I'm still working with people. I'm still coming in every day to try and be a better person and trying to help to help others. And I think I realised that I don't have to do what I do in front of thousands of people to be good at it. And let's be honest, yeah. people didn't used to go to the John Smith to watch my warm-up. They were there to watch the players. <laughs> so, so again, hey, you need you never to never know. So, yeah, yeah, I had a few. I had a few in the front row. But yeah, um, <laughs> they're not there for you. So I think you need to, to accept that you're always going to be working in the shadows. Another example from Huddersfield as well, like just I guess for the reality of it, And it's not to sort of come across as a hero, but I worked for maybe 12 or 15 years to sort of experience success. And I guess the only success, relatively I experienced was Huddersfield staying up in the league last year when we went to Chelsea and Drew. Obviously an amazing experience. Now when I look back, I look back at, you know, the dressing room photo that everyone wants to be in. So the lads are in there, there's champagne flying, everyone's buzzing and I'm not in there. And I think, where am I? And then I realized I was out helping the kit man load the van. Yeah. And for me, that's the beauty. You do your work. You try to be the best that you can be. And the people who you've helped will know. And the ones you haven't will go their own way. Ultimately, you'll go your own way. But you'll know that you've done what you needed to do. And I think that's the thing. If you do want to go on this journey, you need to find your why. And that why needs to be you. If you want to do it for other reasons, fame and fortune, you've only got to see my car or speak to my bank manager to realise, unfortunately, yeah, that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I think people will always come round to that in the end, won't they? Like, I think we get, we get pushed down the, the same sort of rabbit hole that, that we chase these jobs and these dreams and this so-called success, but you, might, like, you look at it and you think, well, well that, that's success for some people, but what success Success for others like success isn't it's a it's a weird word because it can mean different things for everyone i think it's just shown that your focus has just switched on to what success is and and the the way now that you're looking to develop people which i think is just absolutely like crucial and invaluable for people to come around to
2: yeah and i guess the only thing i'd add to that ben is you're right with regards to success but the problem with success is always moving You will never get there so you think success for you is getting your first paid job in football you do that and you realize you can do it then you want to go to a different club then you want to go to a different club then you want to change to a different role and then I think that was the thing for me I realized that I've probably done more than what I was expected to do so again when we talk about adversity I was rubbish at school my GCSE is literally spelt fudge so for me to go to do what I've done, I'm <laughs> pleased with it and I'm proud of it. But then for me now, it's, you know, I want to have a family. I want to look back on my life and actually have lived it rather than just be work. Because, again, it's cool yeah. for the first five minutes you catch up with someone. And it is hard. So, like, even now, if I bump into somebody and they say, oh, what do you do? If I say, oh, I'm a lecturer in university, it sounds pretty cool. But if I said, I'll oh, I work for a Premier League football club, everyone's like, whoa. But then after they've asked what you actually do, the conversation just moves on to normal life anyway. And I think yeah. that, that's what you can't lose sight of. Life is, is just life really. It's not who you're working for or what you're doing. It's, it's just who you are. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think one thing I'm trying to get my head around at the moment is, like, how would you become sort of well-known, if you like? So I guess I'm trying to become an expert or a consultant so my career is, has been okay, and like people will listen to it and think, oh, he's done really well. But the only people who you know me are the people who, that know me. Like I've not got a massive following on social media. Like I like to think all of the players I've worked with and all the staff I've worked with have earned their, their sort of trust and respect. And then how do you get to that next stage? How do you get to be the go-to guy or the one that everyone's listening to or following?
1: Just... just um expand on that Mark because I know I mentioned it at the very start of the podcast and, and I think you mentioned it throughout a little bit as well but through your, what you're doing currently in terms of your role
2: yeah so I guess I'm, I'm lecturing so I'm lecturing uh, strength and conditioning at University of Suffolk um, so really enjoying that, uh, obviously really enjoying the teaching side of it and again engaging with people and if I'm being honest, my aspiration is to help people achieve their goals now. And I guess I would like them to go on to fulfil their potential and their careers. And if somebody wants to have a go at doing what I've done, can they do even better? Can they learn from some of my mistakes? Can I add a bit of bit of value there? Um, so, yeah, predominantly obviously doing the, the, the lecturing side of things. And I guess something we're looking to do uh, on the side of that is to develop... Better networks, um, trying to make sure that our students are industry ready um, and making sure that, yeah, I guess if you like, I'm acutely aware now that my reputation will be delivered by other people. So they need to be good enough. Yeah. Do you, do you see what yeah. I mean by that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, it, like, to have someone like yourself in in that sort of a position, like the, the students down there must be, whether they realise it or not, I mean, they can draw from so many of your experiences and like to think they take take advantage of that because I know if I was back in that position and realise where you've been and, and the jobs that you, and the roles that you've been in, the experiences you've been through, they should be trying to take as much as possible from it. Um, I think it's like, it's absolutely crucial for them to do that. And like you say, a lot of these universities the students are coming out and they're not prepared. They're not prepared for what real life is. They're not prepared for a real, real work life environment. And you I think like we've spoke about having you know, your job now is to, to do that and to prepare them for that and, and them ready for it.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I can reflect back to this when I was working in sort of football as well. So like players and people are a product of us. So in your own environment, you could thinking that you're doing a great job, So, for example, if you were working in a football club and you were delivering an S&C programme, you could be coming onto a podcast and telling everyone what a great job you are doing inside your own environment. But I guess the key to it is is to empower them, people, to take that wherever they go. So, again, working in football, can the players you're currently coaching, if they go up or down an age group, can they demonstrate their competency in that environment? If they're lucky enough to go away in international football, can they demonstrate that they can do it there? or once they get transferred or loaned. So I guess it's the same with what I'm trying to do with my students here. I'm trying to work as hard as I can with them at the time I've got available. But then as they go on through their careers, that stays with them. It's not just about the three years that they're with us. And it's the same with my philosophy of working with, with players. So I guess when I reflect back, obviously I worked at some great clubs, but I probably worked as hard for every single individual player as what I did them clubs. Because yeah. I'm a bit of a geek on a Sunday. I buy the paper and I see how all the lads are done on a Saturday. And they're at different clubs every season. So it's the same in education. Our students are going to go off. And we just hope that we can give them enough knowledge and experience to go and make names for themselves. And that they can actually live and breathe the values that we've taught them. Rather than just talking about actually what we do. Like they need to be able to go and demonstrate it. And like I said, that was a reflection from mine working with players in football. Like, it's okay, okay talking a good game, but you need to make your players independent. And you hear a lot of people talking now, which I guess to a certain extent is true. If you're a really good coach, eventually you'll make yourself redundant because it's not that hard to do what we do. Yeah. So, so you need to give them the tools to do it themselves. Um, so I guess that's what, what we try and do here. So by the time the students come to do their master's programme, effectively it's almost more like a mentorship rather than a sort of teacher-student relationship. Because in three years, we should be able to teach them the nuts and bolts of strength and conditioning. Whereas when they go on to the Masters, they've got that knowledge and it's just about refining it and, and
1: sort of applying it. Well, then it's putting their own stamp on it as well, isn't it? And like becoming becoming the coach and like what you mentioned before, seeing where they can have the most impact with players and that all becomes personal then, doesn't it? They all get the same the same knowledge, like you say, and then it's a case of becoming a coach then.
2: Definitely. And I think that's something that, applies to both worlds like you never want to create robots it's the same when you work with a group of players they're all individual so they should all be treated individually so although they might be doing squat or deadlift or whatever the case is the way that you coach that might be slightly different the way that you set it up some might use blocks some might not some would use different loads some might use velocity like yeah something can look the same but be very different and i guess that's the devil's in the detail there isn't it and like i say when i give the students the benefit of my experience I'm not saying to go and do that because that's worked for me it's just if you're in this situation what did Mark do here he did this well it won't work in this case but I'll just take a little bit of it um, and, and yeah I guess that, that's our, our journey isn't it
1: yeah I think that's great um, and it all comes down to then the personality coming out of the coach as well which is another thing you have mentioned in the episode that it's like you say you just said about not creating robots you want to see personality within coaches don't you you don't want them to be boring you want them to get players going and and however they do that and get motivated like I see all sorts of different coaching styles but essentially if it if it leads to the same sort of results and and it leads to that that word again that success then it doesn't really matter does it no no 100% I think
2: it's the it's the outcome that's important the journey doesn't really matter or the process so for example if we take it to university we need all of our students to graduate with very good knowledge but how we teach that can be really different as long as they've got the knowledge at the end of it and it's the same with coaching like we want all of our players to be fitter, faster stronger but that journey is going to be totally different for every individual and obviously it's so complicated because it's learning preferences it's Growth and maturation, you know, playing position, so many things that influence it. I think, yeah, be prepared to, and that would be advice for general practitioners, be prepared to sort of flex and mould. And this is something I learned from a coach. So he would challenge me all the time, why are you doing that? And I'd always have a scientific answer. So if we take mini bands, for example, I used to do mini bands as part of my pre match warm up on the pitch. So obviously yeah. I thought I was doing that for the right reason because I wanted to get some glute activation. I thought I'd activate that glute. It might have a bit of injury prevention because it might then offset the hamstrings. It might have a bit of a potentiation effect before we go into the game. But he was like, yeah, but why did you do it? Because of them. Yeah, but why did you do it on the pitch? Uh, I don't know. So then that really challenged my thinking. Again, we just start with why. So why do I do it to the point where I still do do it, but I don't do it on the pitch anymore in front of everybody to make myself look a better coach. I now do it in the dressing room. Because I do it in the dressing room, the players can do it in the time which is right for their preparation and the way that's right for their preparation, i.e. they can do different exercises depending on their injury history, personal preferences, what their role might be in the game that day. So, for example, if they're going to be a starter or a finisher, they can do different things to help them prepare for that. So it's like making sure what we do, we do for the individual. Um, and not for ourselves and that was a great learning tool for me and I always reflect on that now Like even if I'm putting together a lecture why am I trying to tell this story and is it to make myself feel good or is it to help them and yeah you've got to put the people you're working with first
1: It's amazing Matt. I think that's uh, so valuable for coaches to hear that um, and it's sort of just a, like a reminder for coaches as well because sometimes we can get caught up in that trap of doing things and not really thinking about why we're doing them and I think one, one thing I used to think about was that I was always going to have someone, whether they were there or not, I was always going to have someone stood over my shoulder and question it, and you had to sort of think, you have to have the answer there, there ready, and there, and there, a lot of the time there wasn't, but mm. if you do think that, that they're there and you're going to have to justify it and, you, like you say, you reflect on it, um, then it you have to come up with that reason then, don't you, and you, you then you develop the reasons why.
2: Yeah, and I guess... About contradicting myself, you need to know why you're doing it, but you don't also always need to know the exact answer. So that's where you need to be open to that conversation and that discussion. And a lot of the times I hear that S&C coaches and support staff aren't getting on with the technical coaches. It's because they're colliding. So because yeah. they've got their why lined up, it's like, it's like firing shots. They fire a shot, fire back. So playing tennis, boing over net, boing, bang it back. I think sometimes it's okay to say, "Well, I don't know," or be prepared. I'm doing it for this reason, but what do you think? Well, it might be better if we did it that way. Yeah or no? And it's yeah, it's always having a clear reason to be progressive, but then also not being frightened to try stuff. And yeah, the the re- your why it could be, "I just want to see if it works." Yeah, simple as.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the, that's the way we progress, isn't it? Some of these things that from from what last few years and months have been people doing that trying things and seeing if it works and it's not to say you do things that are going to put your players at risk or um, anything like that but you do have to try things every now and again and if it doesn't work then you drop it and if it works then great.
2: Oh 100% again I'm full of cliches you probably guess at by now but if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you always got. And there's no yeah. truer words. Like, and you have to be prepared. And this was something I really struggled with when I first started out sort of 10, 15 years ago. Oh, but it always comes back on itself and you're always changing your mind. But that is science. Every you day do. we're learning new information. So we either evolve and we go with it and we go on the journey and we're doing the best that we can be at that given time. Or it's like fashion. We just carry on doing what we do and we hope that in ten years' time it comes back again. Yeah. So for me, you have to go on that journey and you have to be prepared to explore. And ultimately, you have to be prepared to sometimes admit that you were wrong. Um, I look back on my career and I've made loads of mistakes and I've probably learned the most from doing so.
1: Yeah. No, I think you have to at certain points as well, don't you? You can't. Um, I went to the cohesive coaching seminar last week with Training Ground. Time yeah. it was it was really good and yeah. it was it was one of those where it was um I'd heard Damien Hughes speak before um, but I'd, I obviously knew who Brian Ashton was but I don't really follow rugby that well but he spoke about um, training sessions in that if the if the training session went well and the, there wasn't really any mistakes by players in that the standard wasn't where it needed to be and yeah. it, and he said it, and I was like, like, you said before, it was like a light bulb moment. I was like, well, yeah, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, like, you train, yeah. it shouldn't be, it shouldn't go smooth. And if yeah. it's going smoothly, you need to change something. Um, yeah, yeah. That's not, how, that's not how performance happens.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah,
1: it was, 100%. It, it was a really, really good event. And, um, yeah, it was some great takeaways from that. Um, well, let's just move, move it on, Mark. Well, I want to just go through... so. We've obviously worked through your career there. I just want to sort yeah. of reflect back, and yeah. I want like to talk to you about some of your biggest bugbears throughout your career.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guess, I guess it goes back to the point, and then this is just a random one, off, sort of top of my head. I don't profess to be the best sort of S&C coach in the world, and I'm reminded of that every time I walk past the mirror. Do you know what I mean? I'm not the big guy <laughs> who lives in the gym, unfortunately. I guess I've tried to earn my reputation, if I've got one, uh, through my knowledge and sort of my, like we spoke about earlier, my softer skills. So my communication, my empathy, being able to build relationships. So obviously, I think if you were, if you were that big guy and you're going into a new environment, it's obvious that you know what you're talking about because you couldn't have done it if you, if you didn't know um, so it's probably going to help to get you quick sales and stuff. Um, but if you know anything about sort of strength training or perhaps more specifically size training, you'll also know how much time it takes to achieve it. And I've had a couple of ranks on Twitter with a couple of our friends on the other side of the pond who are very big on the s and coach has to be uh, sort of lead by example. And I guess to a certain extent you do, but at the same time my approach has always been so, for example, if I had the choice between going to the gym for an hour at the end of the day or spending that time maybe working with a player or planning a session or even researching new ideas, I guess I always prioritised getting good at my job rather than practising my job. Um, so, it's linked almost to like the old saying to know the games, you have to have played the game. So, do ex players make better coaches? Again, I guess it helps, but not every ex-player is a good manager and not every good manager is an ex-player. So it comes down to be who you are and try to, again, work on a super strength. So I'm not the guy that's ever going to be stacked. Like my genetics are probably more built towards sort of middle distance running, if you like. So I could try really hard to get big, but then again, why am I doing it and who am I doing it for? if it doesn't help me when I work with other people. So I guess if you want to be good at what you do, you just have to get good at helping people achieve what they want to achieve. And if you can do that, you'll get a good reputation. Um, But I guess now I've got more time on
1: I was just going to say, if if we were solely um, recruiting coaches on the way they looked, we'd have a, a coaching team full of bodybuilders, wouldn't we? And and it's not it's not the way that players are going to be. Uh, they get they're going to develop, and I think there's extremes, isn't there? You don't you don't players don't want to come into a gym and see a conditioning coach who's massively out of shape, who's eating a take last night's takeaway and um, still hungover from the night before, but that's that's the extreme, and then the other extreme is the, the bodybuilder. Yeah. But if you find the right balance, and like you say, you, essentially, if you've got the player as their like the priority and they're the number one, how you look doesn't really matter too much. It's more about how you can develop the player.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think I don't get me wrong. I do work out and I do probably exercise for maybe three or four hours a week, but I do it at times where I can and so I can enjoy it. I guess yeah. my point is I'm not going to, if I, had, if I had another five hours a week it would take me to get bigger in the gym, I'd rather invest that five hours into being better at my work or being better at my life. Do you know what I mean? For me, I don't have to sort of wear what I do. Like yeah. I know I can do what I do. Like you say, I'm fit and I'm healthy and I'm relatively athletic. Um, but I guess another big point for me is if it doesn't have an impact on the grass, it's probably not worth doing. And yeah. it's probably where this comes from. Like you say, football players need to be very explosive. We know that that is basically the key determinant for performance. But you don't necessarily have to be big to be strong. And football players are very athletic, but not many of them are extremely well built. And I really like Paul's podcast for this, that like context is key. And we've said it time and time again. But for me if I just wanted to make people run faster in a straight line or jump higher up into the air, I'd probably try to work in track and field. Yeah. Now, again, I'm probably not a good enough, good enough S&C coach to do that because I probably can't make people that fast or jump that higher. But with the knowledge I've got and the application and the sort of specific nature and the complexity of football, that for me is where I think I can add value.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's just understanding it and taking what you need from those environments as well, isn't it? Like being open-minded and speak, speaking to those coaches doesn't mean that you have to take their model and, and so will use that with players, but you might be able to take one, two, three little vital bits of information and, and then use it with players and that could be really key to your programming.
2: Yeah, yeah, d- definitely, 100%. Awesome.
1: Well, um, that was really good, and I think the guys would have taken loads from that. I just, I just want to wrap things up, Mark. Cause, um, I, I don't want to keep you for too long. It's uh, now going dark, even though it is only half three. The um, yeah. sign, the <laughs> sign that winter's here. Um, I just want to move on. Uh, many people that listen to the podcast will know about that we run our network meetings, and we've um, we've run six meetings now started around the country the last one was down at brighton and the whole purpose of the meetings is for coaches to come and it, it's great to link in with this podcast as well because you spoke about the necessity to meet people and build a network and that's what we run the network meetings for we have presentations last presentations, like, like i mentioned in the last podcast from will and josh down at brighton top top practitioners um, so you they get valuable information from that and we will be running more. I mentioned the Nottingham one that's been that, uh, that will be announced very soon, but that's going to be in February. Um, and we have a few more lined up for 2019. But what we're also going to be running, um, with obviously your help, is, is a regional network meeting as well. So do, do you just want to expand on that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So like obviously when you spoke about the cohesive coaching conference, um, that's something I did see on social media. And I would be keen to attend, but the logistics of getting there from Suffolk Um, obviously make it a little bit unrealistic with working full-time and other commitments. Um, So like what we said about um, when I was referring to the talent pathway, if you like, with the FA, the East region is quite cut off from the rest of the country, and that doesn't mean that there's not good people here. So in the East region, there's some fantastic practitioners who are doing some great things, but perhaps it's a little bit more challenging for us to seek support and guidance Um, because to do that we have to travel big distances or people have to travel big distances um, to us. So I guess my idea is is try to regionalise your fantastic network whereby it would be a smaller regional network, obviously, and we might be able to meet on a more frequently basis and perhaps a more informal basis. Um, So we almost have like a a buddy-type system within our network so certain people know where to go to get certain things um, and then obviously what would happen then is, is that would then tie back into your national networks. Um, so then as a region, we could either send representatives or we could make it easier to attend because we can, you know, car share or hire a minibus or whatever. So obviously your your national events, as I call them, are fantastic and, and are really good things from the one down in Brighton. But again, I unfortunately couldn't make that because it was in Brighton. It was perhaps a little bit too far away. So this would yeah. just be a check-in, effectively. So the national ones would be the main structures in the year, and this would just be a check-in every now and then for people who live you know, in the East region to get support if, for whatever reason, they can't attend. And then I guess our job will be to then try to put things in place to try and help them to attend and make that easier as well.
1: Yeah, and this is something we're going to trial in, in your region, but it's something that yeah. I'm really keen on um, developing in other regions as well, because there's going to be other places... In the the UK, really, that are, that have the same sort of issues in attending the bigger meetings, like like yourself and like you're saying. And um, we are going to release the details of the meeting very soon. Um, it's not going to be as big, so the meetings aren't going to be as big as what as our network meetings. But we're looking for um, the guys that are in the area that are, that are looking to develop the network and and. Like, I'm sure you've seen from the episode that for someone like Mark to be taking control of these meetings and to have the, the experience that he's got, he's, involved, he's a person that you need to go and learn off and speak to, and these, this is a chance to do that. Um, so if you are in, in the Suffolk region, um, reach out to us, Like drop us a, a private message on Twitter, and we'll keep you up to date with when the meeting's going to be. We, we will put it out at some point, um we're not going to yeah. really push on it because we don't want it to be huge we want it to be a good um a good number of coaches that are at the at the right level that are ready to discuss and, and take value from everyone within the group um, so we will be sort of monitoring who goes into the group and into the meetings um but yeah reach out and let us know if you're interested in attending and we'll keep you up to date with all the information
2: yeah I think the reason obviously we're going to try and do that Ben is we're going to try and obviously grow it quite slowly and quite organically and just sort of see where it goes
1: Um,
2: but one thing I would say so far obviously I've tried to contact um, people from clubs in the region and it's not just Suffolk really it's probably uh, Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and is it Lincolnshire where's sort of Lincoln, Peterborough, places like that might be Lincolnshire Um, so it's the whole of East Anglia and I think that whole side of the country if you like is relatively cut off um, from the rest um, so yeah hopefully it will be be quite impactful
1: yeah, yeah. no it'll be great and um, I know you're going to be presenting for us so uh, I'm sure the guys will take plenty away from that I've
2: used all um, my best punchlines now though, haven't I
1: <laughs> oh, I'll
2: yeah, listen to someone else's <laughs> podcast <laughs> we'll
1: prancing in the mirror
2: yeah yeah
1: that's it <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time and doing this i think it's been um i think you've gave one of the most honest and open uh podcasts so far and, and a real insight into your career and i mean your your experiences in the loves you being at your CV is so impressive so I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing the information with the guys
2: no problems at all like I say I'm really chuffed that you had me like I say I'm a massive fan of the federation and all the great work that you do
1: thanks a lot Mark and uh, we will catch up soon yeah cheers Ben speak soon
2: thanks Mark cheers mate take care bye
0: massive thank you to Mark for coming on the show I think I really do think that was a Info-packed episode, I took loads away from it, and I have done for the last few times, I've um, had conversations with Mark, he's a a coach that I think you can take loads from, loads from his experiences, like I said at the start, his CV is extremely impressive, and I think all the students that he's now um, in control of over at the university are extremely lucky to have someone like Mark um, that they can speak to and take uh, crucial and vital advice um, from about their careers. You can follow Mark over on Instagram. He's Mark Armitage85. Um, on sorry, on Twitter, Mark also mentioned the regional meeting and what we're looking to do with this one. Um, our network meetings normally are a little bit bigger than what we're looking to run with this. Mark is going to be running a, a meeting. that's going to be a smaller meeting, much more targeted. For coaches to go in and discuss um, more specific topics, so it's not going to be so much about developing um, a larger network. It's going to be a smaller network within the area. So we're looking over over the east side of the country. Um, The university, obviously that Mark works at, is University of Suffolk, which we're we're looking to hold the event. And we're looking around about the twenty third of January at the moment. If anyone is interested in attending. Please either drop us a message or get in contact with Mark over on Twitter um, and we'll, we can send you the information over on that. Please go away and subscribe and share the show as well. Um, it is growing. We are getting more listeners, which is great. And I really do appreciate everyone that's that's logged on, that's um, downloaded and listened to the show so far. And the guys that have sent the feedback over has been great as well. Um, I'm I'm really enjoying speaking to all these coaches and practitioners. It's something that's really beneficial to me to get out and speak to these people and I hope you guys are taking from it as well. But I really would appreciate it if you shared it and tried to get more people listening to the show. Also go over and leave a rating and a a written review over on iTunes because that'll boost us up, that'll get us more listeners um, and then we'll be able to keep the guests coming. So thank you again and we will speak to you next week.